this is that um, the science community is is speaking up, is stepping up, which is really cool. Um, people like yourself, we uh, recently had Avi Loeb, who uh, started my uh, friend's podcast, uh, Jessica Rogi, and just seeing you guys uh, step forward and, and like to me, that's like superhero stuff, you know, because back in the 80s and 90s, I would have never thought, you know, that scientists would ever come out and look at this phenomenon seriously. And it seems that things have changed. So, you know, kudos to you guys for sure. Uh, and I want to know more about you because I know you're uh, huge into science, but um, are you a fan of science fiction by any sense? Yeah, I'm a science fiction fan, certainly. Favorite yep. book series as a kid for like sci-fi? Did you have one? Favorite book series as a kid? Um, probably not for sci-fi. Um, I went a little older in college. I really enjoyed um, Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency. I thought that that was a lot of fun. Um, and movie-wise, movie-wise, I don't have a very interesting answer. Probably my favorite, you know, sci-fi movie would have to be Star Wars, and that's pretty much because I was 12 years old when the movie came out, and that's kind of a magical age for for um, for that sort of thing. And um, and it and it was a and it was a groundbreaking movie, and to be to see that at twelve years old was really quite influential. So yeah, the nice thing about Star Wars too is that it looked lived in, like it wasn't polished. I think up to that point, most of all the Star Wars uh, before Star Wars, everything was always super polished, and Star Wars had that lived in <laughs> look, which made it feel more realistic. Right. Yeah, it felt real, which was great, and. Um, and it was also interesting how the first 20 minutes focuses on two robots. That was pretty unique as well. Um, having two robots as main characters was something very different too. And, um, and I was, and I always wanted my own R2D2. Uh, and so I've actually a few years ago started building my own um, astromech droids. So I've building my own R2 unit and, He'll run around the house eventually, hopefully. So I'm still still building him. <laughs> as long as I, I think the um, if ever we come up to, with droids or at that point technology, as long as they follow Isaac Isomoff's rules for robots, I think we're good. Because you are in science and because you work for NASA as well, what initially got you into the UFO subject? What drew you in? Well, that's a good question. I think... Um, uh, there were a few things. Um, firstly, I was—I've always been interested in them, ever since you know I was a young teenager. I used to watch um, the TV show *In Search of* with Leonard Nimoy, and and very often UFOs were covered on that on that TV show. So that was always great fun, and um, and I remember seeing. It would have been what 1986 or so on the nightly news, seeing the um, the a report on the um, Japanese airline uh, case over Anchorage, um, Alaska, and um, so where basically this Japanese airline was chased for about 40 minutes by a large UFO over over Alaska, and I remember seeing that on the news and thinking that was pretty amazing. Um, <clears throat> And it was 
But I think what really did it was when I went to graduate school, I went, I grew up in Wisconsin and I went to graduate school in Montana at Montana State University in Bozeman. And it was probably um, our second week in class there. So it would have been September or so of 1988. There were a couple of cattle mutilations in the area, which was all over the news. And it was pretty freaky um, hearing about this. And we were discussing this in the physics department. Some of the new graduate students were in the hallway, you know, very excitedly discussing, you know, these cattle mutilations, trying to figure out what what could this be? Who would do this to these poor cows? And and why would anyone do this? And and um, and one of the professors uh, saw us all very excited down at the end of the hall, so he came to see what was going on, and we told him that we were concerned about these cattle mutilations, and he said, yeah, well, that happens around here sometimes, and very often they're associated with UFOs, but no one ever figures out what caused them, so it's sort of this ongoing mystery. And then he he added, he said, but what's really strange is that, he said, I've got a few colleagues in the Air Force, and they're stationed up at Malmstrom Air Force Base, and they have problems up at Malmstrom Air Force Base with UFOs flying over the missile silos and shutting down the nuclear missiles, shutting down the ICBMs up there. And this is 1988, I heard this, you know, coming from a professor who says he knows people who have, you know, are dealing with this. And so, and to be honest, when, you know, when he walked away, we, we, we all laughed really hard. We thought that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. You know, UFOs shutting down nuclear missiles, you know, surely that couldn't be happening without, you know, somebody just losing, <laughs> in the United States, losing their mind and doing something very blatant or obvious about yeah, yeah. it. And so it always kind of struck me as an odd story. And, um, and it wasn't until probably around maybe five, five years ago or so now, um, I was preparing a lecture for an astronomy class and on the possibilities of extraterrestrial life. And uh, one of the students was interested in UFOs and wanted to know what's the possibility that, you know, aliens could visit Earth. And I was... I was just trying to figure out what to put together for that lecture. And what am I going to talk about, you know, and keep this scientific. And, um, and I was poking around on the internet and I stumbled on the press conference that um, uh, Robert Hastings had held on where he um, discussed the UFO incursions at nuclear weapon sites. And he had Robert Salas, who was at Malmstrom Air Force Base and several others, um, talking about this and I just stumbled on the YouTube video YouTube video of, of this press conference and I was stunned because I I thought my god wait a minute these guys are talking about this UFO incursions that I heard about in 1988 um, and when I heard about it none of this was publicized I mean this wasn't something that was spread around so and then it really puzzled me because the incursions that they were discussing had happened in the 1960s. So I thought, well, wait a minute. So this has been going on for 20 years. This went on for a 20 year period and possibly still going on. So, and I heard about this 30 years ago and I, 
I thought, well, this can't possibly be, these guys can't possibly be making this up. I mean, these, these are all professionals and you're not going to get multiple generations of professionals making up the same, you know, fairy tale stories. It just doesn't make any sense. Keeping the lie consistent. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought something weird must be going on here. This maybe, maybe, maybe this is really happening and we're, all ignoring it because we just all think it's so ridiculous, but apparently it's not. So I think that's what really got me interested. I thought that this is something that ought to be looked at, you know, and, and, and I was then tried to look to see if any scientists had ever looked into this and, you know, and there was, you know, there's a handful of people, but, um, but nobody really, you know, dove in and studied this, and um, it was usually just just blown off, which really also had me puzzled. So, um, I think it was twofold too, because I think the you know since you know nineteen forty seven, plenty of scientists and educated people like yourselves were brought in, you know, contracted through the government to do certain things to figure out something. And it's just been out in the wash, but for so long, the private side never funded that. So, you know, even um, the depart- uh, Defense Department having, what, 200, how, how much billion dollars missing or something? Like, they just can't trace any of the money. That all goes to those projects, but never funded publicly, unless it was Robert Bigelow doing something. Right. Well, it's not, yeah, it's not clear how much the government's actually done. And I think, you know, Congress doesn't even know at this point, which is why we have a UAP task force. So, so it's not clear what the government's done. It's not clear what people in the government know. Um, I've talked to, you know, some of the people who've, you know, worked with the Pentagon and, and worked on some of these projects, but I'll be honest, they don't seem to know much more than anybody else. It's really pretty stunning. Um, I can, I've asked some really basic questions at times and had, you know, just, you know, responses like, wow, we have no idea. <laughs> and yeah. Where, Which where you think of somebody. Yeah. <laughs> it would, I would, you know, and other questions I'll ask and they say, well, we can't talk about that. <laughs> we can't talk about that, but we can't talk about that. But, but, you know, when it comes down to, you know, how many, you know, I, one question I asked that, that, I had not gotten an answer to, and people really seemed to be surprised by. I asked, how many of these things are present on Earth? How many of these craft are present on Earth at any given time? And I don't know, and nobody's been able to give me an answer to that, not even an estimate. So wow. uh, that's something you should worry about. And and Is that and, a failure on maybe like more of a... a global government scale the fact that they're not helping each other out track this stuff like it seems to be like we're all on their own well that's, everybody's that's on their own on this probably one. a big part of it i mean you can't you it's going to be hard to estimate something like that by just taking data from one country so you're going to need multiple countries coordinating with each other and sharing information so it it seems to me like we have this global issue that nobody's talking about and, and it's not clear how serious it is. I mean, it could be very serious and it may not be very serious at all. <clears throat> I, I think that's surprising to me. Well, the, you know, we can all fantasize about what it would be like to, you know, meet 
an alien, but the thing is, it's alien. We wouldn't know what to do. The feeling would be weird. It's not, like you mentioned, we don't know if they're a threat or if they're benign, if there's a reason why they're here. Who knows? Um, but what I found interesting is when you were working with, because you kind of grabbed uh, the physics of, of what you saw by the Tic Tac, and you calculated by its velocity, like how fast you think it could travel. I was impressed by that because I'm impressed with anybody who can do math to begin with, because that's not my department. But I was blown <laughs> away by 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 that. Could could you like what did you do initially to to grab that that data? Right, I think some of that came about from my curiosity as to how unusual these objects really are, and many witnesses will jump to the conclusion that it what they saw was an alien spacecraft and and as a scientist and like why why on earth would you pick that as your description and um why couldn't it be a drone or something made by you know made by a government on earth or a company or something and why why a spacecraft um you didn't see the thing fly in space so how how are you assuming it's a spacecraft and um so I thought, well, you know, one of the one of the reasons that people think this is these things shoot off into the sky at unbelievable speeds, and and um, you know, I remember, um, oh, it was one of the one of the officers who was um, sent to check out the UFO at um, Rendlesham Forest, yeah. So in Rendlesham Forest, I remember they, um, one of the one of the witnesses had kept a notebook, and he, you know, in that notebook, he, you know, when he reads his, from his notebook when he's giving a lecture, and he says, "Speed impossible," you know, and so I, so I thought, well, how how impossible is this speed, you know? I and that was really a question that I've always had, especially as a physicist. Um, you can't, you don't expect accelerations much more than 10g i mean anybody's going to be jello by the time they've experienced that so um most equipment isn't going to survive accelerations over you know 10g so that was one of my first questions you know especially when hearing about the the tic tacs and the descriptions you know the david fravor commander fravor described the thing as he said it looked like a ping pong ball bouncing inside of a jar. And I, really, how do you do that? You know, physics, physics wise, how do you accomplish this? And so I think that's really why I set out to try to estimate their speeds and accelerations. And I, at some point, I had gotten in contact with Kevin Day, um, who was observing these things on radar, and he had watched. One of these things dropped from 28,000 feet to sea level in something like 0.78 seconds. And um, and I thought, well, that's really fast. I mean, you can't, the, the accelerations there are crazy high. So I, but I, and I thought, well, I can compute the minimum acceleration that you need to be able to pull that off. And I thought, this is exactly what I need to do to be able to determine whether these things are really unusual or not. And and when you do the calculation and and account for the fact that there's going to be some uncertainty in the numbers that he's giving you, um, you come up with accelerations on the order of 5,000 times the acceleration of gravity. So 
So the thing would have had to accelerate halfway down and then decelerate the other half. And you're doing that all in seven tenths of a second, which is terrifying. Um, <clears throat> so 5,000 Gs of acceleration, a, a, our new fighter jets can't handle more than 13 Gs before the wings get ripped off. So we can't, and missiles don't experience more than about 60 Gs. So you couldn't possibly have a missile frame even withstand that. So how is this craft doing this? Um, it's not a seagull. It's not. <laughs> it's not <laughs> these silly things. Um, it's not a drone. Yeah, Kevin? no, it's not just a drone. And if it is a drone, it's a fantastic drone. Um, so I had done. You know, so that's why why I so I did those calculations just to see what are we actually dealing with here? What kind of what kind of things are these? What could it be? And um, and once I saw that this thing was accelerating at five thousand g's, I thought this is crazy, and that means at the midpoint, in a third of a second, it will have had to accelerate from zero to about forty five thousand miles an hour and then decelerate back to zero again. That's the only way you could have pulled that off. Um, that's the minimum acceleration. Now, you could pull it off by accelerating more, but um, that would be even more impressive. So, it, It's like almost setting, uh, like, you know, exactly the height, wh where your stop line is going to go. Mm -hmm. So from wherever their point to wherever they're going to end up, it's like it's almost pre-calculated, perfectly executed. Um, it's brilliant. It really is scary. Yeah. And so with a, and with a top speed of 45,000 miles an hour, that's about the same speed as our New Horizons probe that passed Pluto six years ago. So, oh, wow. So that's a spacecraft speed right there, um, easily a spacecraft speed. So why would you assume these things are spacecraft? Because, well, the answer now, now we have an answer. The answer is because these things are observed <clears throat> electromechanically observed, <laughs> you know, with equipment to travel at spacecraft speeds. And the best equipment, yeah. right? Then they like totally the best deck equipment up we have, have we've tracked these things at spacecraft speeds. And, and, and if you could sustain that acceleration in space, then in a matter of a few hours, you would be traveling at close to the speed of light. And so could this be an interstellar spacecraft? Yes, definitely. In fact, I would add, and I think I did in the paper that we wrote, not only would this Tic Tac, could this Tic Tac have been an interstellar spacecraft, it would have been an excellent interstellar spacecraft, <laughs> not just one that could pull it off. It would be a great one. <laughs> so yeah. so that's, that's shocking. And that, you know, really got my attention when you, when you start cranking those numbers. Well, the, uh, and I mean, at the time, we used to hear more single uh, cases that would come out from people that were airplane pilots or fighter pilots. The one that I really liked was uh, the one that rotates on its side, because right before the end of the video, it says, yeah, there's a fleet of them. Look on the NSA. <laughs> right. And. And that part, like, I'm surprised nobody freaks out. There's a fleet right, of them? That's, like, it's not just one. There's multiple. No one's asked that question. And that amazes me, too. No one's asked the question, how many were in that fleet? 
I mean, that's something we yeah. worry about, right? I mean, yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. who has two thumbs and wants to know this guy? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When it, I, I mean, astronaut Gordon Cooper was encountered um, UFOs when he was in, you know, an airplane pilot in I think it was 1951 in station Germany, and he was sent up to observe these things that were high in the upper atmosphere. And he said there were, you know, he basically said it was a fleet. You know, there were lots of these things, not just one of them. But they were at altitudes that their planes couldn't reach. So they couldn't go up far enough to investigate. And um, so I'm, I'm surprised more people aren't concerned about this. It's, it's you know, you see a fleet of them? <laughs> How many is a fleet? <laughs> you know, or, yeah. and then I and ask, like, you know, I'll ask yeah. people like Lou Elizondo, how many of these are present on Earth at any given time? And his answer is no one knows. We don't know. That's a good question. I, I, and, I believe, I don't know, I can't say for a fact, but I think this planet is like a beehive. And they're all over. Whenever we rotate and, you know, our sleep cycle starts, they do whatever they're saying. They just keep doing that as the world. Who it's, knows? It's, yeah, at um, this point, I don't think anyone actually knows. And hmm. what surprises me is nobody seems to want to know, which is, you know, I don't. That's not because because it doesn't affect them yet. Yeah. Right. Because they're saying, well, if it doesn't affect me, if it doesn't affect my job, it doesn't concern right. me. Let the brainiacs worry about that, but they don't understand if it's global, it's going to be over your your head one way or another. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's a very it's, simple. Yeah, it's the fact that it's a global problem is really part of the issue. It can easily become somebody else's problem that way. Um, it's basically how we react to climate change and things like this too. It feels too big, so we all just kind of throw up our hands. Oh well, I I'll do my little part and. <laughs> Pretend it's yeah. all going to be okay, <laughs> and and pretend I didn't see it. That's right. Yeah, uh, my wife did something similar to that when we we saw three orbs once. It was a weird experience, but she just didn't want to talk about it. Didn't want to talk about it forever. I'm like, well, let's talk about it. Let's let's say what we experienced. What did you see? Right. She finally now, I think six years down the road, will talk about it because she's more open to the concept of. UFOs, UAPs, not thanks to me, but Jamie Foxx for his phenomenon movie, mm. because she watched that and that's what sold her. Not me. Oh, interesting. You know, saying that for years, it was that movie that sold her on it. Uh, but she then could talk about it. Right. And I thought, you know, how many people, especially, you know, I've been talking to people that are interviewing people that are in churches that have had experiences and it doesn't fit the mold yeah. that they've been taught to follow and this is global i mean it does it happens everywhere it's a standard reaction to having your worldview confronted and that's a big problem and and the scientists re react the same way um they don't want to look at the problem they don't want to look at the issue um it's well, that was until you guys came along. Well, there's now a handful of scientists who are who are curious and are like, wait a minute, this is interesting. And, you know, some of them are, this is interesting. Some are like, we should be worried. Some of these, you know, are like, well, let's get to the bottom of this. It's a, you know, cool problem to solve. Or the potential for a big discovery. I, I you know, see all of those sides of it. Whether good news or bad news or odd news, yeah. I, I don't... I don't think it'll be good news because I think we're at the bottom of the totem pole on this one. 
uh, unfortunately. Well, it's okay, and I think, but I think that's something that humans need to get used to. We've we've had several episodes in history where we've had to learn that we're not the center of the universe. Um, you know, I, but usually that ends up violent. <laughs> yeah, well, we don't handle that well. No. We don't. We, yeah, no. Our past record is not. <laughs> God made God made the world for us. So this world is for us. This is my world, not you know, and and. We're used to being the top, the top of the food chain, and and to find you're not the smartest, you know, smartest, you're not the sharpest crayon in the drawer is is going to be worrisome. It's part of nature. Like if the universe creates, you know, intelligence, then it's part of nature. Intelligent, you know, for us to figure out that oh, actually, there's other alien life. It's part of nature. Therefore, it's science, right? Like yeah. we have to acknowledge it, right? Actually, people would kill me if I didn't ask you this, but from your time in NASA, what was your general consensus of like other people and their thoughts on it? Because they're working in space exploration. <laughs> so the, there had to be some sort of, you know, groupies that were looking forward to seeing something. Out of, out of all the scientists that I know, it, probably my friends at NASA are the ones who would believe in this least or be in, least oh, really? least interested in this as well. Yeah, more skeptical. Yeah, that's crazy. Which, which I find, which I still find to be a little counterintuitive. But yes, yeah, seems like it doesn't match the job description. But that's that's just us. But it's about yeah. The problem is about your worldview being changed. So it's it's and that's really the that's really the issue here. And even with like space force kicking in, which I thought okay, good idea to kick in with space force, but. How does it start? Um, do you just have cadets and then you wait till you build ships to go up there, or are the ships already built and you're just waiting for the cadets? Like, how is this working out? You know, I'm just no so idea curious. what they're doing. <laughs> they were they were talking about tripling the size of the space force, and I thought, well, they ain't gonna. They're all just hanging out. And I, yeah. I just I kind of imagined like in Starship Troopers, and they're all just hanging out in locker rooms, you know, and, and talking about how they're gonna kick kick some alien ass and and not doing anything. That's really what I pictured. But well, if the oceans is hard to to, to manage uh, militarily. You think what space space would be a logistical nightmare, right? I, I don't know. They must have some people working this stuff out. I'm not quite sure. Especially with our little chemical rockets, I don't know how this is. Well, <laughs> it's yeah. really it's really pretty humorous, actually. Yeah, how are they going to send everybody in space at once? That's that's right. what I want to know. And like, how many fleets do you have? You know. Uh, I have so many questions, but I guess we're not going to find that out till maybe ten years down the line when it's uh, a little bit more formalized. Right. I mean, I would I'd be willing to bet that we're probably more active in space than we know. Um, I don't I don't believe that we have moon bases yet or Mars bases, but I think that we're probably a little more active than we think we are. Actually, you brought me to a point here. So again, in one of your uh, sessions, you were talking about. Uh, interstellar travel and you were mentioning something about like you don't think that past 20 i think it was twenty thousand light years you don't think a, a species could travel that distance or technology wise wouldn't allow it past that point if it, i might be butchering your words here oh no yeah no that wasn't quite the issue i had been so i had um so i've been working on a project i'm still working on this and that is to model civilizations that colonize other star systems 
And um, so they all have different abilities. They all have technological, you know, capabilities and they may be different than us. And the idea was to get some idea of how hard it would be for another civilization that, you know, grew up somewhere else in the galaxy, how hard it would be for them to find and come to Earth. Um, you know, so there's, you know, got to keep in mind, there's 300 billion stars in the galaxy. So um, if you check out one star every year, it's going to take you 300 billion years to <laughs> look at all the stars, right? So you're going to have to do something different than that. Um, the universe is what only like 13 billion years old. So <laughs> only, <laughs> right. So, so you can see already, this is going to be, it'd be surprising for somebody in the galaxy to find earth. And I wanted to get some idea of how surprising it would be. And so I've been doing simulations and so far what I found, and I'm not ready to publish this yet because I'm still checking things and, you know, working on this, the algorithms here and trying to get large enough, um, a large enough number of simulations so that I can be sure of the statistics, but it looks like, it would be very improbable for anybody to find Earth if they were more than 20,000 light years away. So if, so I would have to say at this point, it looks like from the simulations I've been doing, and that's just it, there's simulations, um, that if we have somebody coming to Earth, then they are probably grew up within 20,000 light years of here. Right which puts us puts them in our quadrant of the galaxy to use which is still mind-bogglingly like I can't even imagine what that distance would be like right. that's insane <laughs> yeah it's still pretty amazing yeah so the the sim and so that's what the simulations would tell me and that would also it would also mean that their domain um, has spread to a greater than a 20,000 light year radius which which would mean that Earth would be within their domain. And so you could have a very, you know, of course, you're dealing with an alien. In that case, if that were the case, you would be dealing with an alien intelligence. And it's not clear what their perception of Earth would be. Um, they could very well believe that they own Earth. Um, we would we would think so if you know we had discovered it right <laughs> and um, we feel like we own Mars it's in our solar system that's our that's you know we're gonna go colonize it because <laughs> it's there and we I can claim this for France that's right yeah, yeah so um, they could very well believe that they own Earth um, and we're gonna have a hard time convincing them of that when we just live on one planet. You know, and they own, you know, 20,000 light year <laughs> domain, radius domain. Um, we don't know. We don't know what the situation is and we don't know what situation we're in. And it's going to be very interesting to find out what the truth actually is if we do find that we've been visited. And I actually I, and I suspect that I suspect it's possible that we're not just visited. I think we're probably occupied or populated might be a better populated is probably a better term. Well, it's one of the things that um, I sort of, it's not really debates. I, the thing is, I, here's my problem. I get onto Facebook and then I start arguing with idiots and I know I shouldn't be doing it, but I do it anyways, because I have nothing better to do with my time, Kevin. So, <laughs> uh, you know, people are arguing like, Oh, it's stupid. Why would they come here? 
from, you know, how many thousands of light years away just to probe somebody and fly all the way back. And I'm like, okay, one, the probing stuff is that's from like the nineties that doesn't talk about anymore. Second of all, why the fuck would they go back home? Like if they're able to establish, like we don't even know what's at the bottom of our oceans. Why wouldn't they be hanging out down there? We're stupid. We're not going to go down there anytime soon. Right. Uh, They have, like you mentioned it, they have to be close. Um, to be able to do uh, on a daily basis, they would have to be close. They there could easily be bases um, in our solar system, easily be bases in our oceans, underground, possibly. Who knows? I mean, we don't we don't actually know. Um, and those are those are just possibilities. I mean, this is all hypothetical at this point. We don't have any evidence for for this really, except that you know from. UFO sightings, we do know that there is uh, some affinity to water. The you know, something like sixty percent of the Russian Navy sightings had to do with you know UFOs going into water or coming out of water. So these craft interact with water, and so very easily could be hanging out in our oceans and. And who knows? I mean, maybe they were ocean dwelling on their home planet, and so this wouldn't be unusual. Um, if you were, came from an ocean planet and you were ocean dwelling, then Earth is a great place to visit because it's got seventy percent ocean. Um, we do, it's easy for us to forget you forget that living on land, you know. But most of most of Earth does not look like what we see when we walk outside every day. Most of Earth looks like water, <laughs> as far as you can see. So it's, um, but we, yeah, we have a very warped perception of our planet. Even um, the general from Israel that recently retired and had, of course, his big moment in the press recently by saying that. You know, there's a kind of like a galactic federation and that there's multiple, um, you know, again, until there's he's not an idiot either. Obviously, he ran the program for 30 years. Uh, I think he might be right just based on the fact that the crafts that are that are seen. So obviously we have the Tic Tac now, but a lot of the crafts are seen. They're never the same shape. It makes sense if they're different species visiting us having different technology and that would be overwhelming for a scientific community there's a yeah well there's there's a great variety of observed ufo shapes now it's hard to it's hard for me to really know what that means when i'm not i've never been shown an actual ufo craft and i've been able to identify it as actually being extraterrestrial so so scientifically as a scientist we don't really have the evidence. We don't have evidence that we're being visited by even one species, much less multiple All species. Right. So that's difficult yeah. already. Now, I would, I can then say that, you know, if we are, if we do have an extraterrestrial presence here on Earth, then it's not immediately obvious that it would be just one species. So. So that's always that's definitely would be a possibility that there could be multiple species. So I'm I'm not surprised, you know, to hear people suggest that. Now I am surprised to see hear him say that there's a galactic federation. That's a whole other level of <laughs> of information <laughs> that to me sounds, sounds a little like to me, yeah, it sounds like Star Trek. It sounds like he's watched a lot of TV <laughs> and and um and it's difficult because he's, you know, somebody who is in a 
a critical position where he's required to be professional and required to be dealing with the truth, not nonfiction. Um, you can't have you can't have people basing you know military decisions on fantasy. That doesn't work very well for long. So it's hard to imagine that it's hard to imagine that he's wrong or making this up, but it's also equally hard to imagine that that's possibly true and that he could know this. So um, I'd also be surprised. I was also surprised by the fact that he knew what the U S you know, he claimed to know what the U S's role was in interacting with this Federation. Whereas most of our Congress doesn't know that UFOs are even real. So how does an Israeli general know how Americans are interacting with aliens when Congress doesn't even know? Uh, there's a lot to worry about here and a lot of, and, and I think that's, it's difficult because there, there is a lot of, a lot of fantasy, a lot of people, who think they know things that they don't actually know and who can't tell the difference. And, and it's, or I've, we've, we've seen people too, like, and I mentioned this before in the podcast, but you see, you know, people start really good, you know, like wanting to do disclosure stuff. And then just as the years go by, it's like, Oh man, crazy train just picked up speed. And then they just went off the tracks. I think what happens is once you realize that your worldview, once you have your worldview broken, you then something then happens in your mind that then leave, makes the possibilities that it's broken in other ways um, more tenable. So um, yeah. So once you you know so I, so I think that you know once you if you've encountered a UFO or seen something and especially if it was something for compelling to you you know and we don't have we don't have the necessary scientific evidence to be able to say that this is these are extraterrestrial and these are real craft and all this sort of things at this point. But um, but for a witness to see this, or for someone to encounter enough witnesses that they're like, oh yeah, no, there's got to be something going on here. Um, so I think your mind breaks in a certain way, and it's then possible that. Yeah, sure, there could be other dimensions, and sure, there could be, you know, why, why, why not have fairies, fairies in Iceland living in the little fairy houses? Why not? You know, and I can see how, you know, that can happen to people. Now, I picked some extreme examples there, of course, and, but I think that's kind of what happens to people when their worldview gets broken. I think they don't know what to grab onto. I mean, your worldview is your foundation for what you believe, and once your foundation's broken, it's like now, now what? What do you? You don't have anything to latch on to. So it's almost like they're trying to grasp, but now they're just going after everything they can. Okay, gotcha. Any, yeah. yeah, and I think that's I think that's a natural thing that happens, and I think it's dangerous for all of us who have our worldviews broken. I think that's very common. They try to keep each other accountable as well, right? You start going off the track, saying, "Hey, hey, I've noticed this," right? Yeah, it's 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 easy to get off the tracks, and it's easy to you know it's a it's hard even with my scientific training to you know I find myself discussing all sorts of weird topics with people, and then have to remind myself you don't, you don't have any any evidence for any of this, you know, right? These are all anecdotal stories, and you know, and you do have to remind yourself this. 
I, I keep hearing, and this is a question that I had that um, I, I'm curious about, but is math the same? Is it universal? Would other uh, entities use the exact or, or similar math to us? Or can it be different? And is that why maybe technology can be different? That's a good question. And I don't think that there is a good solid answer for that. Um, there is a an interesting paper by the physicist Eugene Wigner. His name's spelled W-I-G-N-E-R. And it's called The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics. And it's a an essay paper about you know, he's just asking, why does math work? <laughs> why does math work? Why it works really well? Why? Why should it work? And it's yeah. actually, it's it's a deep question, and it's not obvious. And um, and I've been interested in that question for most of my physics career, and um, and I found that there are. Trying to think of how to explain this without getting into too much detail. But I found that there are certain um, symmetries that have to, that, that hold in, in real life, right? Um, and so, for instance, you can, you can actually show some things mathematically which are interesting. So if I take, so if I have, if I have three pens in one hand and I have two pens in the other and I combine them, I always get five pens. Right. Right. It doesn't matter whether I have the three pens in my left hand and the two pens in my right hand or vice versa. It doesn't matter. I can shuffle them around. I can take, um, and I always get five pens when I put them together. And it turns out that that ability to shuffle and not change the number of pens is we call that associativity. Um, it doesn't matter how I group pens. Well, actually, the, the example I use with two hands is would we call, we call that commutivity. So, commutivity and associativity together basically say you can shuffle things and still combine them, and it won't make a difference. So, so it turns out that if you have those two um, symmetries, associativity and commutivity, then you can prove that if you want to assign a number to represent how many pens you have that you basically have to use addition. Whatever you use is in using mathematical language, you can say it's isomorphic to addition. So, so you could transform the number in some way, but it would still be addition basically. So you have to add. So if I start combining things, I have to add them. There's nothing else you can do. Um, it's the only thing that works. And so so I've, I've discovered, you know, I discovered this in my research and we're now writing a paper where we have derived um, the, basically some of the rules for um, quantifying um, systems in quantum mechanics and the rule and um, some of the, um, what are called the Lorentz transformations in special relativity and things like this. And we've shown that you can derive all of these at the same time from these simple symmetries like I was describing with associativity and commutivity and distributivity. So, so those okay. mathematics have to be the way they are. There's no other way to do it. Um, so I think that, so it's kind of surprising. It's, it's, we're actually in our paper and we actually are having problems with the, getting this past reviewers because 
we basically derive all of these laws of physics and the reviewers are like, but you didn't do any physics. So how, how did you get physics without doing <laughs> physics? And the answer is that it's all because of the symmetries and the mathematics constrains it to having to be this way. It has the, the math has right. to be this way because of these symmetries. And so you can't have any other mathematics. And so I think, so I would suspect that so that's with, probably generally true at, at this point. I would suspect that. But I think that others could, other professionals could take in, you know, the other side of the argument and say, maybe not. I don't think we totally know yet. Well, I've always been blown away by like guys like Isaac Newton, which is like, your math sucks. I'm just going to make up a math. Like, and I've always been blown away by guys like that. They're just able to we're, like, we're all blown away by them, actually. <laughs> I, I found out he was actually, or allegedly, he was like really arrogant and he hated people. And I don't blame him because if you're that freaking smart, he was a, he was a real jerk. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> from what I've what I've read, yes, he was also deeply. What people don't appreciate is he was also deeply religious, and one of the things he said on his deathbed was that his greatest. Um, one of his greatest accomplishes, accomplishments in life was having died a virgin. Oh, really? Which, which, I, which kind of like, wow, that's, that's maybe, maybe TMI, too much information, Isaac. I heard that Tesla might have died a virgin as well, that he had no interest in women, like none. Yeah, well, he, he was in love with his pigeon, the one pigeon he was in love with, I know, but or had a very special relationship with the pigeon. I don't quite understand that, and I don't want to. It seems like genius genius and oddities in character seem to go hand in hand. Like, these people are brilliant, but there's, like, their social aspect. I think that's really true. Um, now, one thing I want to talk about is how UAP, uh, the coalition, how, how did that form? How, how did that start? That's actually a nonprofit organization that um, was started by Kevin Day. Um, Kevin Day, as many listeners will probably know, was the um, radar operator on the USS Princeton in the Nimitz 2004 case with the Tic Tacs. Um, so how did that start? Um, well, I was in contact with Kevin Day, and I was, I was interested in hearing his, his um, account of, you know, with these the encounter with these Tic Tacs, I wanted to get some, I wanted to verify some of that information that I had read, um, especially about the 0.78 seconds and the altitudes that they were moving between because there at some point became some confusion as to whether they were dropping from 80,000 feet or 28,000 feet. And that's going to make a big difference in the calculations. So I wanted to verify that that was correct. So I had gotten in touch with Kevin Day and talking to him about this and he at one point, he basically said, "Look, I want to, I want to study these things too because I want to know what these things are." And he goes, "So I want to go back out there. I want to go back out there and look for them." And he goes, "How'd you like to do that?" And I'm like, "Oh hell yeah! <laughs> Count me in, easy." Yeah, certainly. So that's basically how it started with with Kevin Day trying to get people together to go back out to. Um, off the coast of California and look for these things. Um, and it's difficult. I mean, are we going to find anything? Who knows? Um, I've, I, I can't say I've never seen a UFO because I have seen things that I haven't identified in the air and some of them were kind of weird, but 
Um, but I've never seen a Tic Tac <laughs> and I've been in, you know, I've been, I've been to Catalina Island. I've been, you know, on boats out there and I've, you know, and I've not, I've not seen one. So, so it's hard to know what we'll find and what the probability of success is, but, um, but we, we got together and decided we're going to do this. And so we have looked into it. And since we, since we had formed UAPX, we have, contacted um ship captains um specifically people who go out often like on whale watching tours and things like this um who are you know spend all day on their boats and are looking around right these are people actively looking rather than working and so um and we've gotten we found that there are lots of UFO sightings and ship captains are just as unwilling to report them as pilots are. They don't want to be seen as crazy either. So, so that's a problem too. And, um, and we started compiling um, sightings and found that that area off the coast of Southern California is what you would call a hotspot. There are lots of sightings around the Catalina Island area and South <clears throat> and so, so we think we have a good chance of seeing something as probably as, as good of a chance as we would anywhere else. Um, and we're now working to try to increase those chances and see what we can do. And, and what kind of team would you need to like assemble to be like, in your opinion, the most proficient that you can be like, what, what kind of manpower would you need? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, we really, would need equipment that pretty much watches the sky continuously and um, records everything, uh, basically. So uh, we are trying to, you know, we want uh, visual cameras. We'd like to record in the visual range. We want to record also in the infrared range at the same time uh, so we can get um, multiple views of objects if they're, if they're visible. Uh, we'd like to record spectra, so we'd like to know what colors of light are reflecting off of these things, or if they have lights on them, what lights, what colors of frequencies of light are they emitting? Um, now, we want to that, detect. Just, just so I have clarification, those colors, would that affect um, how they're reacting with the environment? Like, what's the specific uh, on the colors? It's not clear how these things interact with the environment, so that's a totally unknown. But if the we don't really know what types of lights they have, um, so if you have an incandescent bulb, like an old-fashioned light bulb, that has a different color spectrum than LED lights would have, or or um, or a fluorescent bulb would have a different color spectrum as well. So from the from the spectrum of light, you can tell what kind of light it is. Um, if the light isn't coming from a, a purposeful light source, if it's coming from a plasma that gets generated by the high electric field around the craft, then you'll be able to tell that too. Um, you'll be able to see the spectral lines of oxygen and nitrogen in that, and it'll give you some information possibly of how strong the electric field is. Right. And that may account also for how they're able to go into the water 
as easily as they were able to fly. You might get, yeah, you might get some information as to how they fly in the first place or move or any of this. (laughs) How do they move not having wings? It makes no sense. Yeah. Well, how do you accelerate at 5,000 G? That's what I want to know. (laughs) That's amazing. And stop on a dime. crazy. On a dime. Uh, I was going to ask for all the other investigators out there. Is there something specific if, you know, we start recording something else? Is there something specific that we should um, like camera wise, do you think we should be using, like, do we need infrared or just a standard camera would do justice? Well, a, a good camera that a good, I mean, the, the better the camera, the better. Um, if what I would recommend for people out there with, I mean, the, what's most likely is you've got somebody out there with their cell phone. That's basically what's going to happen um, because you're not going to, most people aren't going to be carrying around camera equipment right. and especially camera equipment that's going to work in low light conditions at nighttime or something like this. Um, so probably the best thing to do would be to have, you know, if you're with multiple people, it would be a good idea for you to spread out to some degree, take photos of the object. Somebody else can take a video of the object, you know, do multiple things Um get pictures of the object and the surroundings in the same scene. And if you're spread out, you can then do 3d reconstructions and get distances. And I think then, and then before you move, you know, stay put, stay in one place and take your pictures and then take pictures of each other so that you can reconstruct where everybody was standing. And that would allow you to, to, triangulate everything to figure out distances to objects and that will help you determine size and 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 it'll be much more believable when you've got you know three people in three different positions giving you slightly different views um harder to fake yeah it's it's a little harder to fake yeah but it and but it would be but it would give you more information it would give you distance to object object size you potentially could have some of that, which would be useful. And then I would also make sure you get get the GPS location of where you are and uh, time. Get the times down because you should you should be able to go, at this point we should be able to go back and get satellite images of the area, and you can then see you should be able to see these things from space. That's something else I'm working on to try to to do better. Okay, with. wait a minute. Um, so you can actually see the stuff on that time step. You can actually go back, and it would have recorded what took place. Yeah, you should be able to go get satellite images of the area, and if there happens to be a satellite taking pictures while you're looking at this thing, they should be able to get pictures of that object. <laughs> That'd be awesome. The now, if the day. objects, if the objects twenty, you know, if the objects twenty feet across, that's kind of small, but. Um, you know, but you can then verify. You'll then have third-party verification that this thing was physically present, and so it will rule out a hoax, which would be helpful is in there, some ways. Is there a site that that's like just common people could use to to do this, or? Oh, there are various satellite companies where you can get a um, a license to get lower resolution images, and so, um, and. <clears throat> Either they don't cost much money or 
you know, some it depends on what resolution you want and what right. type of detail and when. How hard it depends on the company. Yeah. Yeah. So they can run anywhere from a thousand dollars an image to you know free, depending on what you're you're getting. So, and that's something I'm trying to trying to get you know my head around now is what's all available and what can we actually use, because I think it would be useful to to look at prominent sightings and then go back and get satellite images of these things. Um, some of these objects that should be should be easy to do. You, know, you have somebody who sees something that's the size of a house. Well, that's going to be visible. <laughs> it it ought to be, be visible from satellite. Yeah. So UAPX right now, how many members are, are you guys? I think we're we're probably around ten ish. <laughs> Let me just say ten ish. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know exactly, and and it depends on what you know, who's doing what and what kinds of things we're going to be doing. So, it, you know, we're not, we're not just going to go out on research vessels to go look for these things. We're going to uh, set up observing equipment in other places as well and, and see what we can do. Yeah. You're actually yeah. doing the research, right? Yeah. And if, if somebody wanted to, to join you guys or contact you guys either for funding or they want to be a member, uh, is there a, a location that they could go? Oh, it's called UAPExpedition.org. And now, right before I let you go, I'm going to do something I've never done before, which is uh, listener questions. So they've actually, uh, I, I posted that you were coming on. I said, if anybody has any questions for this man, please post it. And I got bombarded. So that's good. So I had a gentleman by Rod Tolliver. Uh, he's just asking what, in your opinion, is the lowest level of government that would have proof of alien existence, if any? There have been multiple programs to try to study different aspects of these things. And it's not clear what has been done, and it's not clear what's known. Um, and they don't talk to each other. They don't talk, certainly don't talk to us So, as private citizens. So it's hard to know what's known. There are, um, <clears throat> and it ranges from, you know, people who have claimed that they have, you know, people who've worked for, you know, the defense industry who've claimed that they've had contact with extraterrestrial materials materials from craft not of this earth um so it ranges from that to people who like lou elizondo they were trying to do a threat threat assessment um they were trying to get an idea of how much threat these things posed and they were um trying to come up with a list of characteristics that these things have such as multimedia travel um, high accelerations, and in the, in, they say instantaneous accelerations, um, which, and so they have a they have a list of five observables that that they called them. Um, so, but there were other, and there are other programs still running. So it's not clear what they study. And you know, I've had, I've heard that there are programs that are studying alien abductees. Um, so they're ranging from all sorts of levels and all sorts of directions to attack the problem. And it's not clear that these are coordinated in any way either. So 
mean, we, I mean, we had the same problem in 9-11 where people, you know, different government agencies didn't talk to each other. And that's how Homeland Security came about. Homeland Security was supposed to tie that together. So, so it's not, not clear what's going on with UAPs, if anything. Um, and I think that's what Congress and the UAP task force um, is trying to assess at this point. Well, that's the biggest fear, I think, for any of us that's interested in, in the subject is just, I, I just don't want it to be a clusterfuck, you know, where they withheld information for so long and all of a sudden it comes out and it's just such a mess. And you're like disappointed that it's not more in line, but who knows? I mean, at this point, toss a coin. Either <laughs> yeah. One yeah I don't know what they're, I don't know what they're going to come up with and I don't know what they're going to release and you know, who knows what's known. Uh, we have, well, I don't know if this one will fall in your realm, but Patrick Lilly asked, why are all the craters on the moon the same depth? Again, I don't know if that falls within your uh, genre here, but that was his question to you. I think, as I said, NASA. I don't, I don't know that they, I don't think they are the same depth. Um, they're certainly not the same size. They are very, they vary in depth. I mean, you've got the small ones, you know, a small one like this isn't going to be 20 miles deep. So it's not, so I'm not sure. I don't know if I can answer that question. I'm not sure what he's wondering about. Yeah, I'm not quite sure what that one fell into, but I thought I would ask because it's uh, just in case you knew. No, that's fine. <laughs> we have John Gilmet here. And he, Thank you. He's saying here, uh, is there a shift amongst scientists in regards to the possibility of being visited by other life forms or is there still resistance to the admittance or um, to the situation? There's a, there is a shift in that I can mention that I'm studying this and my colleagues don't look at me as being crazy. Right. Um, that's about as far as it's gone. There are, then, then I would class people, class other scientists in different groups. So there are those who are then feeling a bit emboldened and who have always been curious and who are now interested and uh, would like to work on this together, work, would like to, you know, compare notes or, you know, I've been looking at this. What do you, what do you know about this? Or, you know, and talk about it. Um, and... Um, yeah, I, I had when I when I wrote my uh, my opinion piece for the conversation online, <clears throat> and I this was this was right yeah, 2017 or so after um, Lou Elizondo came out and talked about ATIP, and I wrote a converse a piece for the conversation where I said that scientists ought to be studying UFOs. After I wrote that, I. I never, I didn't get any criticism from scientists at all. Oh, wow. In fact, everybody was very supportive. They were like, "Oh, that was well written, and that's a good argument. You're right. We should, we should probably should study these things. That's a good idea." Um, now, yeah. So then you get a group of people who are like, "I, I want to study them. What can I do to study them? You know, can I work with you? Can we?" It went, it went as far as one friend of mine emailed me. He goes, "This is really exciting." We should start a secret cabal and study UFOs. And I was like, oh, I don't know about a cabal. That's a little, <laughs> that's, that's a little dark, but okay. <laughs> yeah, so, so there were scientists who are interested. And then there are scientists who are like, you know, their, their stance is, well, yeah, you should study this. That's a good idea. Um, 
you study it, I'm not gonna. (laughs) So I don't want to, I don't want to waste my time with it because it's probably nothing, but you know, but I think it should be studied. And so we've had now that class of opinion, which is pretty reasonable. And then there are these, then there are the people who are, um, I want to be agnostic about this. We don't know what these things are. And like, of course we don't. That's why we're studying them. And they said, so, but I don't even want to mention the word alien. And, and so, well, but that has to be one of the hypotheses. I mean, this is one of the hypotheses on the table. Yeah. These things do appear to be craft. They are craft that can travel at tens of thousands of miles an hour. And based they on our knowledge, we can't do that. Right? They, yeah, and we don't have that technology, and that's it looks alien. It really does. Yeah. And um, to not admit that would be would be just ignoring one of the hypotheses, which is foolish. And and that's not, not scientific. scientific. That's not scientific. So for 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 the time being, like Kevin, like for you would be more like the observables would be speed. You're going to try to find these locations where these things are being uh, seen. If you could capture them, uh, your plan is just to, again, do more calculation on their speed, velocity, or are you trying to find more, like, where are these located uh, and how often? I want to find, yeah, we're looking for any patterns we can. You know, we, there's a lot of questions. Where, what are they doing? What are they doing here? What are they? Why do they show up in some places and not others? You know, if, if that's the case, uh, we don't know if that's the case yet. It appears that it might be. Um, Supposedly South Korea has none. Really? Yeah, I talked to the uh, uh, Bufan himself <laughs> director, and he's like, none "Dude, we got none. <laughs> nobody, nobody submits them. None." Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a, one of the worries is you have sampling bias. Whether people are submitting yeah. them or not, um, that makes a difference. Um, also, we don't know how many sightings are actually alien spacecraft or something else right and so it's right, right. very difficult and 95 percent of the time they are they're, an identifiable yeah, yeah yeah something like 95 percent of the time they're actually something else and those things i'm not interested in i'm not studying those things but you have to wade through that's what we call the noise you got to wade through that to find the cases that are interesting and good What's well, good too that you guys are also looking at it from an academic point of view as you're writing your research on it, you're actually building a base for you know the future generations to look back and have at least you know some data to look at. Right. China's good that way, but they, they, everything they do is for like the future generation. I think we should live that way here too, but we don't. Um, one last <laughs> question for you, Kevin. Is this is from Racker right. Joe, and uh, the question is: Who might be some of the major investors that would invest in UAP technologies outside of the government control, uh, or like the Department of Energy or anything like that? What, who do you think would be interested in this tech? Oh, who would be interested in the tech? Oh, I think that's a long list. I don't know how to <laughs> limit that list. Anybody in aerospace would be interested in this tech. Um, that's. I'll just leave it at that. That's that's the obvious one. The um, no, I mean at these accelerations and speeds, if you know, as long as these craft can have can have occupants, which we're not sure about. If they are craft, it's not clear that anybody can be in them and survive it, right? right. And so they could be autonomous. The Tic Tacs could be autonomous. We don't know. Um, remote controlled, who knows? Um, but 
if you could have inhabitants in the craft, then then you could get from New York to London in like five, ten minutes. It would be faster for you to get from New York to London in a Tic Tac than it would for you to get from JFK Airport to Manhattan. That's crazy. (laughs) Which would be crazy, right? And so, I mean, but imagine how that would transform, you know, everything. We just go from having jet airliners, you know, an airline industry to just having taxis. Right. You know, hundreds of thousands of taxis that, you know, somehow can't crash into each other. So it would be a nightmare. But in that <laughs> seen, sense, but the they'd people, be fast at least. Oh, seeing the way people drive and be could, a nightmare. I mean, but, but you could get to, I mean, you could go to Mars for lunch. You could go visit Elon Musk on Mars at the one of the Mars colonies for lunch and then make it home for dinner. Um, it would be amazing technology. Yeah, even you mentioned on on uh, one of your videos that like something that would take you know it would take you five years you know our time to travel, and you said it would like you know the people on a ship would only seem like forty five days, you know, like just that distance. If you if you traveled, yeah, if you traveled, you know, interstellar travel, yeah. interstellar speeds, yeah, yeah, that, that's definitely true. But I think. Yeah, I think I think that yeah. So that technology, a lot of people would want it, and of course, you know, the next worry is that somebody's going to try to weaponize it, which would be worrisome as well. You know, we don't, and I think that might be one reason why you know governments are silent on this. We don't want to give another country a leg up where somebody weaponizes this first. Right, and it's you know Bob Lazar did bring a good uh, point, and he said you know like this technology. If it's beyond us, we shouldn't be tampering with it. We don't know what we're doing. Like you mentioned about a nuclear reactor. Right. You know, you said that back Victorian age, they don't know what the hell it is and they're going to die. Right. So I think it's true. Like, I don't know. I don't know how much faith I have in our own species uh, to go about this the smart way or the best way. I think that it's we're constantly at war with each other in only trying to develop things faster than each. Instead of helping each other out, it's who's going to be the first and this is a major problem in the UFO world is that pushed a lot of us out of our comfort zone to say, you know what, I want to start looking into it because obviously nobody's coming out and saying anything about it or doing anything about it. Um, but again, the scientific community like yourself, sir, coming out and, and doing this, you like your heroes to, to me, because, you know, I look up to you guys and see that you guys are. Well, thank you. In this. That's kind of you um, to say. <laughs> yeah, it, it's cool. It's cool. And I, I could probably say that a lot of the, the listeners would, would say the same thing. Thank you so much for your time, Kev. Oh, certainly. Thank you.